Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. China ramping up threats as reports say Nancy Pelosi is visiting Taiwan tomorrow. The White House revealing what Beijing could do and how the U.S. would respond. We will not take the bait or engage in saber rattling. At the same time, we will not be intimidated. A journalist says the government of her homeland is trying to kill her here in the U.S. A man charged with possession of an AK-47-style rifle allegedly spied on her. Negotiations to free Americans Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan continue. But what are the risks if the U.S. releases a convicted international arms dealer to Russia? He wasn't just trading and dealing arms. He was giving those arms to terrorist organizations. Concerns raised over a public-private partnership. A group says the CDC worked with big tech to censor alleged COVID-19 misinformation. Did they go too far? We don't take anything down. We don't block anything. Actress Nichelle Nichols has passed away. She played Lieutenant Uhura in the original Star Trek series. The NFL's Deshaun Watson given a six-game suspension after being accused of sexual misconduct by dozens of women. Commissioner Roger Goodell could increase the penalty. We start the evening off with some breaking news. President Biden will address the nation tonight at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time about a successful counterterrorism operation regarding al-Qaeda. Multiple news outlets are reporting that a U.S. drone strike killed Ayman al-Zawahiri in Afghanistan over the weekend, citing an unnamed senior official. Al-Zawahiri was reportedly Osama bin Laden's successor. And a man who carried a gun onto U.S. Capitol grounds on January 6, 2021, now has to spend over seven years in prison. U.S. District Judge Dabney Friedrich today sentenced 49-year-old Guy Reffitt of Texas to seven years and three months in prison, three years of supervised release, mandatory mental health treatment, and $2,000 in restitution. This is the longest sentence handed down so far in relation to January 6th. And next, a journalist living in the U.S. says the Iranian government is trying to kill her. That's after a man with a gun paid her a visit in Brooklyn. Details laid out in federal court documents. Here's what we know so far. Masi Alinajad was born in Iran, but lives in the U.S. now and has become an American citizen. She regularly criticizes the Iranian regime. Last year, she came under the spotlight after the Iranian government allegedly tried to kidnap her. Last week, a 23-year-old man was arrested in front of her house in Brooklyn. According to a federal complaint, law enforcement observed the man for two days while he was in his car in front of Alina Jad's house. He reportedly stayed in the car all day long and even ordered food delivery to the car. Alina Jad says the man tried to enter the house. She posted this video of him in front of the building, allegedly trying to open the door. According to the complaint, he later left the area by car and ran a stop sign. Officials say that's when he was arrested, and police found this loaded AK-47 in his car. Alina Jad says the Iranian regime sent the man to kill her. She has a message for Iranian officials. I want to tell you, get, go to hell. I'm not scared of you. I have only one life. You care about power. 
I care about my dignity and freedom, like millions of other people inside Iran. She also criticized America's relationship with Iran and sent a message to President Biden. Throughout all the di Iranian diplomats, why they are here, the Iranian regime twice challenged the U.S. government on U.S. soil. I deserve to have freedom in, in the United States of America. Kick them out. If you don't believe me, they're going to come after the more American citizens. The Iranian government has not yet responded to the allegations, but in the past denied the attempted kidnapping allegations, saying they were baseless and ridiculous. The man with the AK-47 was charged in Manhattan for possessing a firearm with an obliterated serial number. Reporting by Arian Pastar, NTD News. The Biden administration today said they're condemning what they called the apparent attempt to harm a U.S. citizen. However, they're awaiting the conclusion of the ongoing criminal investigation before making additional comments or taking action. And now, could Nancy Pelosi visit Taiwan tomorrow? The White House forecasts how the Chinese military could react if, in fact, she does, while vowing the U.S. will not be intimidated. NTD's Iris Tao has the details. Speaker Pelosi, will you be going to Taiwan? Still no word from the House Speaker on a possible stop in Taiwan, even as she kicks off her Asia trip in Singapore. The reports say it is happening. The Wall Street Journal says Nancy Pelosi is meeting with Taiwanese officials on Tuesday and Wednesday. And CNN says the Pentagon is trying to keep Pelosi safe as she visits the self-ruled island that Beijing claims as its own. I haven't seen any such confirmation. And the White House, though declining to confirm her specific schedule. The, the speaker's flying aboard a military aircraft, so we'll know. And is downplaying the potential Taiwan visit and urging Beijing to stay calm. The speaker has the right to visit Taiwan, and the speaker of the House has visited Taiwan before without incident. And if the visit indeed happens, Pelosi will be the highest-ranking American official to visit the close U.S. ally in 25 years. Her predecessor as speaker, Newt Gingrich, traveled there in 1997. Yet Beijing ramping up its threats, saying the Chinese army, quote, won't sit idly by if Pelosi makes the trip. And NSC spokesman John Kirby saying Beijing could respond by firing missiles in the Taiwan Strait or making a large-scale entry into Taiwan's airspace. It's, it's not so much uh, that there might be a direct attack, but it raises the stakes of miscalculation and confusion, which could also lead to unintended consequences. Kirby also discourages Beijing from turning the visit into a conflict, while adding, We will not take the bait or engage in saber-rattling. At the same time, we will not be intimidated. Both China and the United States on Monday deployed military forces to the region around Taiwan. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. And on Ukraine, the Biden administration will give the country another $550 million worth of military equipment. John Kirby from the White House National Security Council spoke about the package during today's White House press briefing. This will be the 17th now time that the Biden administration has authorized a security assistance package using presidential drawdown authority since President Biden took office, and it brings to more than $8 billion drawdown authority uh, alone uh, in material and security assistance for Ukraine. This new package will include ammunition for high-mobility artillery rocket systems, or HIMARS, 
and ammunition for the 155mm artillery systems. The package came after National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff General Mark Milley spoke with their Ukrainian counterparts earlier today. The Pentagon said in a statement that the U.S. will continue to work with its allies and partners to provide Ukraine with key capabilities. And hope appears to be around the corner for Americans Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan as the U.S. and Russia negotiate a prisoner swap. But the negotiating is being brought into question. Could releasing a convicted international arms dealer help Russia's military campaign in Ukraine? NTD's Jason Perry has the story. One of the prisoners Russia wants to exchange for Americans Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan is Victor Boot, also known as the Merchant of Death. In 2008, he was caught on camera agreeing to sell weapons to undercover agents that were to be used to kill U.S. troops. Bout was an arms dealer, but he wasn't just trading and dealing arms. He was giving those arms to terrorist organizations. Former federal prosecutor Nathan Williams explained to NTD how the arms dealer could be released. And it's not uncommon for federal sentences to be reduced for a variety of reasons. And certainly um, bringing back Americans um, back to their country is, is, is a valid, I think, international and, and domestic um, reason to reduce sentences. Although the U.S. has not confirmed who they offered in exchange for Griner and Whelan, the attorney of the convicted arms dealer said this. I'm confident that this is going to get done. Williams explained the implications if Boot returns to Russia. I think he will help them however they, they can get help from him. And so, yeah, he has obviously experience in, in arms trading. He has experience with multiple governments. And, you know, he had some levels of success dealing arms on an international level. Um, I imagine Russia would use him any way possible. And if he has a role in, in, in helping them with the Ukraine, I'm sure he would, he would take advantage of that. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby commented on Russia's attempt at a counteroffer that includes a former colonel in Russia's spy agency. He was convicted of murder and is currently serving a life sentence in Germany. It's nothing more than a bad faith attempt by the Russians publicly to avoid what is a serious proposal, one that we aren't making detailed in public and has been on the books for several weeks. We reached out to the Department of State and they said, in order to preserve the best opportunity for a successful outcome, we're not going to comment publicly on any speculation. Jason Perry, NTD News. Now to big tech. America First Legal, a public interest law firm, finally got records it had requested from the Biden administration. The records show the CDC worked closely with social media companies to identify what it deemed COVID-19 misinformation. NTD's Arlene Richards speaks with a former Justice Department lawyer to find out whether the CDC violated the First Amendment. Last July, the Biden administration announced it had been working with social media companies to limit talk about the COVID-19 vaccine. After the announcement, America First Legal asked the Biden administration for records about its relationship with the companies. Gene Hamilton, vice president and general counsel of AFL, told the Epoch Times the records are direct evidence that the White House did collaborate with Facebook. But a year ago, when a reporter asked then-White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki for more details about the relationship, she said this. We don't take anything down. We don't block anything. Facebook and any private sector company makes decisions about what information should be on their platform. Our point is that there is information that is leading to people not taking the vaccine. 
But former Justice Department lawyer Hans von Spakovsky says there could be a First Amendment violation. Could the CDC be held accountable for a First Amendment violation because it helped a social media company flag posts that it thought or deemed disinformation? Uh, if the government is uh, asking private actors to censor information and that private actor, uh, like Facebook, is basically acting as an agent for the government, well, then you have a potential violation of the First Amendment. So the government should not in any way be asking private uh, sector uh, companies, social media companies, to remove information that they consider to be wrong uh, from the social media context. We reached out to the CDC, but we didn't hear back by broadcast time. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. On Capitol Hill this week, Senate Leader Chuck Schumer's top priority is passing a $700 billion budget bill. There are a number of changes to the tax, tax code, including more ability for the IRS to crack down on tax evaders. Here's NTD's Melina Cup with more on how this proposal could impact your bottom line. Democrats this week are racing to get a budget bill to the finish line. The measure is referred to as reconciliation. A number of changes to tax policy are included, like granting $80 billion to give the IRS more capacity to monitor your returns. It also proposes a 15% minimum tax on corporations. Why should the average American care if companies making more than a billion dollars a year are going to be hit with higher taxes? Because once you start discouraging businesses from making more, from being worth more, that means they're not hiring as many people and they might be laying off people. The goal is to cover the costs of new investments in healthcare and renewable energy. They aim to generate upwards of $700 billion. It's always very optimistic the numbers that they give. And I think what's going to happen is that if this bill passes with all these provisions, you're not going to see that amount of revenue ever come in. You know, while the IRS and politicians think that you can just keep on shaking down companies for more money in the form of higher taxes, companies actually change behavior. And especially in 2022 and future years, it's going to be easier for companies to leave the country and set up shop elsewhere. And if companies do choose to leave the country, the government is even less likely to rake in the tax revenue needed to cover the new spending. The reconciliation bill also contains other changes in tax policy. This includes encouraging Americans to buy so-called clean cars. Lower and middle income Americans can get a $4,000 tax credit for buying a used clean car and $7,500 for buying a new one. This is a balanced bill that gives us energy security this country desperately needs. It gives us a pathway forward. It gives us ability to take care of ourselves, to be an energy producer, and also be able to invest in a technology for the energy future. Senator Manchin played a key role in shaping this new budget bill. If Manchin goes along with it, he is eagerly participating in bankrupting coal miners in the state of West Virginia. I don't know how you justify that when you go back home. All Republicans are expected to oppose the bill, forcing all 50 Democrats to vote yes to pass it. Senate Leader Chuck Schumer is aiming for an end-of-the-week deadline to pass it. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. And over in eastern Kentucky, floods unleashed by torrential rains have killed at least 35 people, including children. That's as authorities worked to provide food and shelter for thousands of displaced residents. 
Zachary Goldman produced this report. The death toll from torrential rain and flooding in eastern Kentucky continues to rise. Governor Andy Beshear said that the worst was not yet over. More rain was on the way, followed by punishing heat. There is severe storm potential today in all of the impacted areas. And it's even going to get tougher when the rain stops. It's going to get really hot, and and we, we need to make sure people are uh, ultimately uh, stable um, by that point in time. Some homes in the hardest-hit areas were swept away after days of heavy rainfall that Bashir has described as some of the worst in the state's history. Cell phone footage shows rescuers neck deep in the floodwater take an elderly woman from her almost submerged home in Whitesburg. Elsewhere, rescue teams guided motorboats through residential and commercial areas searching for victims. Officials warn the death toll may continue to rise, with more expected rainfall potentially hampering rescue efforts. The National Weather Service forecasts several rounds of rain and storms through Tuesday. And more news of a passing. Actress Nichelle Nichols, best known for playing Lieutenant Uhura on the original Star Trek series, died over the weekend. She was 89 years old. Nichols' son, Kyle Johnson, posted on Facebook on Sunday, saying she succumbed to natural causes and passed away the night before. The spokesman for Nichols' family told The Hollywood Reporter that the actress was living with her son in Silver City, New Mexico, and was recently hospitalized with an unknown ailment. In 1966, Nichols was cast as the USS Enterprise's chief communications officer, Lieutenant Uhura, in the original Star Trek series. She also appeared in six big-screen spin-offs starting in 1979. And coming up, the biggest quarterly employee drop in Amazon's history. Nearly 100,000 workers have been cut after GDP declines. And an independent news outlet is one of the latest victims of Twitter censorship. The social media platform blocked all content from the outlet without explanation. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. In the latest quarter, nearly 100,000 employees disappeared from Amazon's global workforce, the biggest drop in the company's history. This prompts the question, what will future employment numbers look like as GDP declines? NTD's Colin Fredrickson has more the largest ever quarterly drop in employees in the history of Amazon. Almost 100,000 employees have disappeared from the company, and this is happening as the June unemployment rate remains at 3.6%. We're going to see worsening unemployment uh, numbers uh, over the next uh, several several quarters. Robert Wright is a senior faculty fellow at AIER and the author of Fearless, Wilma Sauce and America's Forgotten Investor Movement. Wright says, Employment is a lagging indicator, meaning the economy moves down first and then there's unemployment a bit later. This is happening as jobless claims have hit an eight-month high. With all those that those government spendings, all those projects, all those things, all those money that uh, we pumped in into the system, there are a lot of job opportunities, right? And uh, seems that's why we are having a good uh, good time with employment 
but that is likely to change. Frank Xie is a business professor at the University of South Carolina, Aiken. Xie says it could change very quickly and that the technical recession could last around a year. The United States has gone through 34 recessions since 1857, and on average, they last 17 months, though the six major recessions since 1980 have, on average, lasted less than 10 months. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. And now to Twitter. News outlet The Epic Times is one of the most recent victims of Twitter censorship. Last Thursday, Twitter blocked all content from the outlet without explanation, prompting a flood of criticism. Since then, Twitter has removed the warning. NTD's Sharn Marshall has more. Twitter has stopped its censorship of content from The Epic Times following a flood of public criticism, including condemnation from three U.S. senators. On July 28th, Twitter began blocking all content from the Epic Times, describing it as unsafe and encouraging users not to proceed. It happened less than a week after ET published its new documentary, The Real Story of January 6th. On the same day, it also posted an interview with sex trafficking survivor Eliza Blue on its program, American Thought Leaders. Senator Marco Rubio demanded that Twitter explain itself for this outrageous act of censorship. Senator Ron Johnson described the action by Twitter as alarming. Meanwhile, Senator Rick Scott asked, where's the respect for the free speech and freedom of the press? We all remember your biased censorship of the New York Post and how that ended for you, Scott said. Just weeks earlier, New York Times journalist Alex Berenson reached a settlement with Twitter after suing them for banning his account for alleged COVID misinformation. Upon having his account reinstated, he reposted the same tweet that got him banned. An article for Epic Times released a statement about the Twitter ban. While it remains unclear why Twitter targeted us, what is clear is that Epic Times is different from most other major news organizations and that we dare to follow the stories where the facts lead. Sean Marshall, NTD News. Amid talks of a food shortage, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission proposes adding more regulation on the agriculture sector. It could put significant financial burden on small family-owned farms and could lead to lower food production in the U.S. The SEC proposal is titled The Enhancement and Standardization of Climate-Related Disclosures for Investors. It would require companies to disclose what they are doing or not doing to reduce their climate footprint. And here to talk to NTD's Don Ma about it is Daniel Lacaye. He's the chief economist at the Tresses Hedge Fund. Daniel, thanks for coming on today. So I want to talk to you about governmental climate regulations. So the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission proposed new climate rules a few months ago where agriculture producers like farmers and ranchers are required to report climate impacts if they want to sell to public companies. Now, a number of groups and politicians are against this. Forbes today even came out with an article that said the SEC's climate proposal sets the table for a Netherlands-style farm crisis in the U.S. So my question to you is, are there any parallels compared to European countries? Certainly. I think that uh, what we can say about uh, the 
current uh, pr proposal is that it's not as bad as what we saw, for example, in the Netherlands. However, it is truly a big problem in the sense that it puts an even further uh, strain on the global food supply chain. Uh, we're seeing uh, regulation that, and, and it's important to say this, that all of these regulations are not going to make a significant positive impact in terms of environment, but are going to generate a very significant impact on supply, because it's making it virtually impossible for farmers to truly generate the level of production that is required in order to offset the challenges created by the Ukraine crisis. So uh, what we have seen in Canada, in the Netherlands, in Germany, etc., are uh, backfiring laws are actually laws that don't improve the situation. They're actually making things a lot worse in an environment in which uh, governments should be implementing measures that would help ease supply chains, not make them even more strained. So if the proposal doesn't do anything for the climate and, and it doesn't help producers produce more, what is the goal? What is the point of the regulations? This is the problem of developed countries' regulations in terms of climate, that they don't look at the global picture. For example, you ban fracking in Europe, you end up uh, depending even more on uh, natural gas coming from the United States that is produced by fracking. You ban the mining of copper or aluminum or, or the production of aluminum or the mining of some rare earth in Europe, and you depend more on China. The, the exact same thing is happening with food. By making it un, uh, uneconomical and making it more difficult and more bureaucratic, what ends up happening is that developed nations produce less and we depend more on nations that actually don't have any of those regulations and that actually do not have the same kind of respect for the environment. So think about this. Why did we end up having such a large dependency on Ukraine and Russia? Because the production in developed economies was being shrunk artificially by uh, misguided regulation and what ended up happening is that uh, numerous nations, specifically in the European Union, ended depending on Russian uh, production. So that is something that is happening in numerous parts of the economy, in various areas of industries, from renewables to energy, and now in farming. I see. Those are some good points. Daniel Lacaille, Chief Economist at Tresses, thanks for coming on today. Thank you so much. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. Coming up, the twin ports in Los Angeles not only handle a high volume of cargo ships, but also cyber attacks. What's being done to keep the ports secure? And the NFL's Deshaun Watson was given a six-game suspension after being accused of sexual misconduct by 24 different women. NTD's Dave Martin explains how Commissioner Roger Goodell could increase the penalty. That and more after the break.
On the West Coast, along with receiving a huge number of cargo ships every year, the Port of Los Angeles is also the victim of millions of cyber attacks. The port's director talks about the attacks on the port and what's being done about it. NTD's Daniel Hall reports. The number of cyber intrusions directed at the Port of Los Angeles has doubled since the beginning of COVID-19 pandemic lockdowns. That's according to the port's executive director, Gene Soroka, who spoke to BBC World Services in July. The increase comes out to about 40 million attacks every month. Cyber intrusions include phishing, malware, and other attempts to breach the port's systems. In response to the increase in cyber threats, the port launched a first-of-its-kind Cyber Resilience Center in January to improve readiness. IBM operates the system, allowing both the port and outside companies involved in the supply chain to collect and share signs of threats with each other automatically. Port of Los Angeles spokesman Philip Sanfield told the Epic Times none of the cyber attacks have succeeded. The ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach remain the busiest seaports in the Western Hemisphere, processing about 40% of seaborne imports and 22% of seaborne exports nationwide each year. At its peak, a record 109 ships waited to offload cargo at the port complex in January, dropping to just under 30 by July 29th. Daniel Hall, NTD News, California. Staying in the state, a Southern California utility company expanded its eligibility program for free energy-efficient home appliances. NTD's Jackie Rios went to speak to one of the program's leads to hear why and how the company is doing it. Gas, food, rent, and utilities for families just trying to scrape by, it can be a month-to-month -month struggle. Fortunately, one Californian company is stepping up to help out those in need. For over 20 years, SoCal Gas has had an energy savings assistance program that provides minor home repairs and replaces certain appliances in the home. Daisy Cristobal Sanchez, an outreach lead for the program, explains. They're energy uh, efficient appliances that are replaced in the home. So it could be a replacement of a clothes washer. It could be the replacement of a water heater, which are some of the bigger ticketed items. We also do attic insulation. We do caulking for windows and doors. We do low flow shower heads, faucet aerators. One so-called gas customer who had applied before didn't qualify, but this time around he did. Wow, what they're doing now, I know I wouldn't have been able to do it. You know, a brand new washer, I can't afford right now. Uh, the doors, the weather stripping. While it's nice to discount home appliances to customers, there's also efficiency reasons. SoCal Gas has a commitment to provide clean, safe, and reliable energy to its customers. And anytime we're using energy efficiency equipment, it's helping to lead towards that goal. Last year, the program allocated $115 million to providing new appliances. Cristobal Sanchez explained where the funds for the program come from. So these are ratepayer-funded programs as authorized through the California Public Utilities Commission, which is our governing body. There is no cost to the customer and no tax liability for our customers for these services. Over the past 20 years, so-called gas says more than 1.6 million homes have enrolled into their energy savings assistance program. And those in need greatly appreciate the help. Jackie Rios, NTD News, Los Angeles. Crews are battling the largest wildfire so far this year in California and trying to protect remote communities. 
thunderstorms, lightning, and hot, windy conditions created additional fire growth over the weekend. Here are the details. I left the night of the fire. Just a month after moving to her new home in Northern California, Harlene Althea Schwander has lost everything she owns to the fast-moving McKinney fire sweeping through the state. I still hadn't put my furniture of antiques, three generations of beautiful things, all of my paintings. I'm an artist. I painted horses playing poker, <laughs> and it, they're all gone. And I'm very sad. My house is gone, all my furniture, all my clothes, shoes, coats, boots, everything's gone. Over two decades of drought and rising temperatures have made California more vulnerable than ever to wildfires. Schwander's home was just off Highway 96, where the McKinney fire first erupted, before spreading across and scorching over some 51,000 acres to date. When I saw it coming over from the community center, and they told, I just saw it explode by, in the dark, I knew the house was gone, because I knew right where it was. And, and the fire department came and told me, she said, just leave now. Schwander has since been evacuated to a Red Cross shelter in the nearby town of Weed, where local officials anticipate many more residents to come, with 2,000 people and counting having been forced to flee. Michelle Hogue is one of the volunteers at the shelter. I had a chance to walk through the shelter and I see people sitting together, talking together, finding comfort in a shared problem and, um, and sitting in a place that's safe, so that is a good thing. And the volunteers are all available to talk and share and help them cope. The McKinney fire was 0% contained as of Sunday, according to the latest data shared by officials. We wish them a speedy recovery. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. Cleveland Browns quarterback Deshaun Watson spent suspended six games without pay for violating the league's personal conduct policy. The suspension comes on the heels of 24 lawsuits filed by women against the three-time Pro Bowler alleging sexual harassment and assault during massage therapy appointments. Watson has denied all wrongdoing but agreed to confidential financial settlements with 20 of the women on June 21st. The discipline was handed down by an independent arbiter, former U.S. District Judge Sue Robinson, and both the NFL and Players Association can appeal within three days of the ruling. The punishment comes roughly a month after a three-day hearing was held with Robinson where Watson's legal team pushed for no punishment while the league wanted at least a year-long suspension. Though the ruling comes from a third-party, NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell can still overturn any decision should either side appeal. The Players' Union has already said they won't. Watson sat out all of last season after requesting a trade from Houston. He was then dealt to Cleveland in March for a package that included three first-round picks. The earliest game he could play would be October 23rd against Baltimore. In basketball news, former NBA great Bill Russell passed away Sunday at the age of 88. Russell was the most prolific winner in NBA history, capturing 11 championships in 13 seasons, the last two of which were as a player coach. Russell was also known for his role in the civil rights movements, marching with Martin Luther King Jr. when he gave his famous I Have a Dream speech. 
He also backed Muhammad Ali when he refused induction to the military draft. On the court, Russell's rival was Wilt Chamberlain. Wilt is the only player with more total rebounds and a higher average per game than Russell, and he also accumulated more than twice as many points. But Russell won championships. His 11 titles were nine more than Wilt's two. And in addition to those, he won two NCAA titles with San Francisco, as well as a gold medal in the Olympics. The six foot 10 inch center was elected to the Hall of Fame in 1975 and in 1980 was voted the greatest player in league history by NBA writers. And back to NFL news, Sportico.com has released their annual estimated valuation of the NFL's franchises with the Dallas Cowboys topping the list at a whopping $7.6 billion. The staggering amount is more than $600 million more than the New York Yankees estimated worth as the second highest valued franchise in North America. Overall, 16 of the 32 franchises were valued at more than $4 billion. The league as a whole was estimated at $132 billion, which was nearly twice the NBA's or MLB's totals. Finally, in baseball, the Milwaukee Brewers have traded all-star closer Josh Hader to the San Diego Padres. The 28-year-old Hader currently leads the majors with 29 saves as a four-time All-Star. The Brewers will receive a package that includes closer Taylor Rogers, whose 28 saves are right behind Hader's 29, as well as pitcher Denelson Lamette and two minor league prospects. That's all for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And coming up, Ukraine's first grain shipment leaves port in Odessa after a deal is signed with Russia and other parties. And police officers in the UK arrested two men for a social media post they called offensive. The police commissioner is coming out and criticizing the officers' actions. Find out more here on NTD News. In Ukraine, the first ship has departed Odessa. The landmark grain deal allows Ukrainian grain to be moved to Lebanon. The Sierra Leone-flagged ship Rizzoni left the Ukrainian Black Sea port this morning, bound for Lebanon. The ship is carrying more than 28,000 tons of corn. It was set to undergo an inspection in Istanbul on its way to Lebanon. It's the first departure since the Russian invasion blocked shipping through the Black Sea five months ago. The grain deal aims to allow safe passage for grain shipments in and out of three ports in the Odessa region. And Russian President Vladimir Putin signed a new naval doctrine on Sunday. It casts the United States and NATO as Russia's main rivals. While inspecting the country's fleet, Putin set out Russia's naval ambitions for crucial areas like the Arctic and the Black Sea. Here are the details. Putin was speaking on the nation's Navy Day in the former imperial capital of St. Petersburg, a city founded by Tsar Peter the Great. The president praised Peter for making Russia a great sea power and increasing the global standing of the Russian state. Shortly before, Putin signed a new 55-page doctrine, setting out the Navy's strategic aims and its ambitions as a great maritime power extending over the entire world. It says the main threat to Russia is the, quote, strategic policy of the USA to dominate the world's oceans, as well as the NATO military alliance moving closer towards its borders. 
If soft powers like diplomatic and economic tools have been exhausted, the doctrine claims Russia may use appropriate military force. Putin did not mention the conflict in Ukraine during his speech. Putin added that delivery of Russia's unique Zircon hypersonic cruise missiles would begin within months, emphasising his ambition to be able to respond to threats to Russia's sovereignty with, quote, lightning speed. Hypersonic weapons can travel at nine times the speed of sound. Over the past year, Russia's conducted test launches of the Zircon missiles from warships and submarines. And over in the UK, a police commissioner is criticising her own police force for attempting to arrest two men for a social media post. The Reclaim Party shared a video of Hampshire police interacting with the men in southern England last Thursday. Here's that clip. No. Which Hampshire police would realise how ridiculous this is. It is. It is. What did it need to come to? Tell us why you it to this level. Because I don't understand. I posted something that he posted. You come to arrest me, you don't arrest him. Why has it come to this? Why am I in cuffs? Because of something he shared, then I shared. Because someone has been caused, obviously, anxiety based upon your social media post. The men reportedly shared a post showing progress pride flags in the shape of a swastika. One of the men was arrested for malicious communications and the other one for obstruction of a police officer. This came following a complaint of an alleged hate crime. At least one of them has since been released and will not face any charges. Donna Jones, police and crime commissioner for Hampshire and Isle of Wight, reacted. She said, quote, I am concerned about both the proportionality and necessity of the police's response to this incident. When incidents on social media receive not one but two visits from police officers, but burglaries and non-domestic break-ins don't always get a police response, something is wrong. Thousands of fans celebrated England's Euro win in central London. The women's national soccer team, also known as the Lionesses, took the trophy home. It's England's first major soccer victory since the men's side won the World Cup in 1966. This report comes from NTD's Jane Wuerl. Scenes of joy and celebration as England's Lionesses take over the post-match news conference following their historic win in the women's Euro 2022 final. Lioness captain Leah Williamson parading the country's first major trophy since 1966. Chloe Kelly's goal in extra time secured England's win. The winning goal, the moment everyone was waiting for. Proud fans filled Trafalgar Square too. For someone who's been in football all my life and women's football, this is like, it's so emotional, this is just, it's something else, something else. And thousands of fans were back the following day, this time with the Lionesses themselves. <laughs> Figures released by the BBC said the peak TV audience was 17.4 million, a record for a women's football match in the UK. Players Kira Walsh and Beth Mead said it hadn't quite sunk in. And Beth, you're now a history maker, a trailblazer, 
an icon. Are you ready for everything that's coming your way? <laughs> nah, I'm just special me. That's me. Um, you better I, be sharing it with everyone else. Of course I will. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> I no, think there's probably going right. to be enough to go around here. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't sound right, though. Like, for me, I'm still best made. I play football, something that I love doing. Like, for me, it's just a dream come true, what I'm doing. What about for you, Kira? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm, yeah, same as Beth. Like, I'm from Rochdale, you know what I mean? Like, it's, yeah, it's just crazy to think that we've just played in the European final. We've just won the European final, and, yeah, it's just absolutely incredible, and I'm doing it with people that I've grown up with, I've played with for eight, nine years, you know? Yeah, it's just an unbelievable feeling, and I don't think, yeah, it's, it's sank in yet, and it's, I think the partying's going to last for a few days, to be fair. The Queen was among those congratulating the team in a statement saying, you have all set an example that will be an inspiration for girls and women today and for future generations. It is my hope that you will be as proud of the impact you have had on your sport as you are of the result today. The Spice Girls tweeted, congratulations, Lionesses, true girl power right there. As well as a message broadcast at Piccadilly. With football finally coming home, the celebrations for the win continue. Jane Worrell, NTD News, London. Coming up, a river cruise in Chicago showcases the city's architecture and history. We'll give you the highlights after this short break. Chicago's high crime rate may be grabbing the nation's attention in recent years, but for decades, Chicago was better known for its architecture and influence on the world's skyscrapers. We take a look at river architectural cruises that showcase the experiments and innovations that made Chicago the city of architecture. Here's the story. We were really at the forefront of so many building techniques, but the real key, I think, is the fact that we invented the skyscraper. Priscilla Mims, a docent with the Chicago Architecture Center, a nonprofit cultural organization, explains that innovation and a myriad of architectural styles made Chicago the city of architecture. It was the fact it had an underlying metal frame that held up the building as opposed to the outside walls. And this concept of an underlying frame allows building to go taller and taller and tallest. The invention of metal frames allowed architects to experiment with different styles of skyscrapers in Chicago after the Great Fire in 1871 destroyed one-third of the city. As a result, Chicago became the birthplace of the world's first skyscraper, the Home Insurance Building, completed in 1885. Other styles of skyscrapers with elaborate ornamental details followed. The Wrigley Building, which opened in 1921, is adorned with French Renaissance-styled cladding, molded into mythic figures, animals, and natural elements. It's covered in this gleaming white terracotta, uh, which just stands out all over. The neo-Gothic-style Chicago Tribune Tower, completed in 1925, was the headquarters of the Chicago Tribune newspaper until 2018. I love Gothic architecture, um, but also because of what it stands for, and it was freedom of the press. The marina towers are unique to Chicago. Opened in 1962, the structure was the tallest residential building in the world. 
people describe them as the corn cobs on the river. Uh, they're two round cylinders uh, that rise up right off of the river. Willis Tower, completed in 1974, was the tallest building in the world until 1998. It's still the tallest building in Chicago. It's um, dark black. It's got different levels of what we call tubes and is, again, visible from all over the city if you look up. And it's just a wonderful example of mid-century modernism. Designed by Chicago's architect Jeannie Gang and completed in December 2020, the 101-story St. Regis building is the tallest in the world designed by a woman. It's clad in six different shades of blue glass and composed of three sections or vertical sections and they have they create vertical curves as you look at the building. Today Chicago's more than 4,000 buildings form a stunning view of the skyline and together they make Chicago the city of architecture. Chicago Architectural Center's River Cruise offers day and night tours and runs through Thanksgiving. Reporting by Angela Moy. NTD News, Chicago. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.